Welcome to the Lubar Executive Education Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about heart-centered leadership. With me today is Deb Crow. Deb is a life and leadership coach that firmly believes every single imperfection adds to your leadership. In today's world, everyone is imperfect, and her mission is to show you that you don't have to be perfect to be a caring, effective, heart-centered leader. Deb has 33 years of experience in top Fortune 500 companies in Canada, the United States, Europe, Asia, and Australia, has co-authored four books since 2015, and recently published her first solo book, The Heart-Centered Leadership Playbook. Her goal is to help people create an experience they envision and coach them to achieve their dreams, goals, and aspirations. Welcome, Deb. It's great to have you here with me today. Mike, thanks so much for having me. It's I'm honored to be here. You're very welcome. To get us started, can you talk a little bit about your leadership journey and how you got into helping others? Oh, we're we're doing a hard one right out of the gate. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I write about this in my book, and I think our journey starts from birth. And and I have people do kind of a timeline from birth to where they are now, because I truly believe much like the subtitle of my book, we master the art of heart in life and leadership. And I think our life experiences contribute to who we are as a leader. So for me as a young girl, I mean, I love school from day one, I can still visualize my kindergarten teacher as I'm chatting with you right now. And I was involved as a volunteer at a young age. I had an Irish Nana who taught me a lot of things and and took me most weekends. And my dad was an entrepreneur. So he wasn't home a lot till I was about middle age when he took ill. But he taught me that working hard is how you're going to do well in life and in leadership. So when people say things like, you're so lucky, I remember my dad would say, the harder I work, the luckier I am. So that work ethic combined with emotional intelligence, which I really learned again from my Irish Nana that I can always control me. So I'm not going to be able to control other people's opinions or misperceptions, but I can keep logic in front of emotion, it's going to take me farther and longer and wider. So I think my leadership journey really was sealed around age eight or nine, kind of that pre-adolescence. And then I think my emotional resilience literally was solidified for me, Mike, the day I lost my dad. And I was, I was a young girl, I was 21 years old. So I think it's been kind of a combined Every year, I think I become a better person, a better leader, because I never want to be complacent in my growth, and I always want to choose to evolve. With your new book being all about heart-centered leadership and understanding there's a lot of different types of leadership, for people who may not be familiar with heart-centered leadership, what are the hallmarks or key traits? There's many definitions and and many nuances, if you will. My definition of heart-centered leadership is honoring your connection with people. And it sounds simple, and I hear a lot that it's common sense, but I observe and coach every day that it's not common practice. So when we honor our connection with people, there's no reciprocity. So what if we could convert B2B to H to H and just have human to human, like you and I are doing now. We're taking the space out of our day. We're here for one another. 
I'm helping you with your podcast. And then in turn, which isn't reciprocity, it's a relationship that we've built. So this interview is going to help students and maybe faculty and, and all the people that make up your listenership. So if we could get rid of the old acronym of what's in it for me, and just be attentive, be compassionate, be an attentive listener. Those are just a few of many qualities of heart-centered leadership. And I think we need to take the rush out of business. And I think we need to do a large insertion of heart-centered leadership within business acumen as a whole. If heart-centered leadership became an elective in business school, that is my big wish, Mike, for 2024. I think we're going to have an onset of heart-centered leaders because there is room in traditional business acumen for this type of leadership. And I think now more than ever, the way the world is, I think people want it. Yeah, I would concur with that. And I really like how you're talking about the speed of things today and taking things a little slower. I think that's a, a huge step in the right direction if everybody were to do that. So speaking of business and executives, what have you seen in your experience regarding heart-centered leadership at that executive or high potential or even C-suite level? What's the business case for why people should be heart-centered leaders? I'll give you an example. I worked with a global tech company and the owner was also the president and the CEO, which was an interesting dynamic. And one of their C-suite leaders lost his father in the middle of COVID and he was from Africa and they were in the middle of a large global audit. And I remember the CFO saying to me, I have to travel to Africa to help my mother. And I'm very sad that I didn't get to say goodbye to my father, but I've trained my team so well. And I am heart centered that I know they'll have my back. So the company and the president and CEO sent flowers and did all the beautiful expected extrinsic things that you would do when someone loses a loved one. And seven weeks after he returned home, he had COVID. It was just kind of that trifecta, you know, where everything happens in threes and we joke, but it really did for the C-suite. And I remember the CEO calling me and saying, what's wrong with him? And I, I had to pause and I said, what do you mean? Well, it's, it's been seven weeks. Like my dad died. It didn't take me that long. And I thought, isn't it interesting how within business acumen leadership can still have that anchor to comparison. And I'm trained in grief and bereavement and grief doesn't have any lineage. Like it comes over you like a tsunami and you have no choice. You need to stop lean in, feel it, especially when it's a parent. That's, that's a deep-seated loss in anyone's life. And I just realized at that moment that I, I didn't want to work with that person anymore. I wanted to work with the C-suite that I was, but I didn't want to work with the CEO. And I remember saying to him, how can you compare how you handled your father's death to your executive's loss. Like it's not the same thing. And he said, well, it is. And and we sent flowers and we did all the things. And I was just like, I'm in the right space in my business, but I think I, I know who I want to work with and who I don't. The shorter version of the answer to this question is I'm going to say it's about 75% heart centered that I've 
been honored to work with. And I've had exposure to 25% who still to this day say to me, there really isn't a place for this in business acumen, like business is business. There's no time for heart and love and, you know, all the fancy intrinsic, I've even had it called woo woo, you know, all those soft words, Deb, like there needs to be, you know, a little bit of a hard shell. And that's just the way some people are, are led. And it leads to a great conversation of what I call episodic leadership. So if you were shown that way, that's the way you think and believe until somebody says, but have you considered this? So for me, it's sometimes it's a barrier. I always try to turn it into an opportunity, but it also depends on the sector, the age of the leader, how they're affiliated with the company, what the board is like. Like there's so many factors, Mike, but I remain hopeful and eternally optimistic that this will be the way. And I, I hope I get to see this before the end of my lifetime, that it's an accepted way of leadership. And for the companies that aren't doing it, they're having big problems with employee retention, which is what I'm seeing as the number one problem right now. And employee retention is on the same line and synonymous to corporate wellness now. Yeah, that's a powerful story. And the examples you're talking about here uh, from a business aspect of the cost of turnover, the cost of disengagement. You can't even go on the internet or read a newspaper or look for an article without that these days. I mean, there's so much being talked about. And a lot of it, I think the the right solution is about empathy and heart-centered leadership. What I'd like to ask next is kind of related to this, how is heart-centered leadership similar to servant leadership, which is something that we talk about in our executive programs too. It sounds like there's definitely some elements that are shared. I think there are elements and crossovers for sure, but it's kind of like, are you a leader or a manager? And there's those misconstrued lines. Are you managing tasks or are you leaning in to the leader and making them a better leader? So it's more of that H to H again, that human to human. I want to delegate this task or this project to you, Mike. And I'm here if you need me, I'm going to check in, I'm going to validate you, I'm going to give you amazing feedback, but I also want you to know that I'm your lifeline here if you have a barrier and there's a psychological safe space to say, Deb, I'm I'm struggling with this and not have it show up on your year-end review that you didn't have the skills or the efficiencies or there was a level of incompetence. A heart-centered leader makes leaders better on a daily basis by modeling all the qualities that they can show and shine within business acumen, especially when they're leading, like they're at the helm, they're leading the ship towards the North star. And most of them are, are now five to seven years. It used to be all the way up from seven to 10. They've backed it way, way back by three to five years. That's been something I've seen a lot in the last 12 to 15 months And they don't get stuck on the systematic or the extrinsic approach to business. They put the people before the profit and they consistently pour into their people. That's the biggest difference. So if somebody's listening and hearing about heart-centered leadership for the first time and wants to begin to be more heart-centered, what recommendations do you have to get started? Well, I've done a lot of my own original work because like you, I I teach in the business school at my local college here in Canada, and I was asked to create a mini leadership series. And what has intrigued people is I had heart-centered leadership 
become the prerequisite. And what was neat about my model, Mike, is we start with heart-centered leadership, then you graduate to inclusive leadership, then you go to mindful, then you go to assertive, then you go to the top to transformational. There's been so many people from the top two tiers who've taken my series who said, we never, ever learned this. This was never modeled for us. And to go back to the beginning and add in all of the intrinsic, whether you want to call it soft skills, emotional intelligence, emotional resilience, it's got all kinds of different terms and labels. But when we can invert the fraction of profit over people to people over profit, that is where we get kind of those aha leadership moments and people feel good about the choices that they're making because they're not making them in a systematic way. There's no black and white. People know there's a big area of gray and there's always room for us to make a mistake, be imperfect. And when that leader can reach out and say, I would rather have you try and fail and get up and have the ability to fail forward. It's a learning opportunity, way to go. That is where magic happens in any organization and where I see healthy, vibrant cultures. That's a great lead into the next question that I wanted to ask you about, which is understanding that leading is a lot about trailblazing and tackling challenging things. How can principles of heart-centered leadership be leveraged to navigate all the craziness and uncertainty in today's world, especially when you're going through a really tough time? So I talk about in the book, and the reason I say that I'm a life and leadership coach is for this simple reason. Every time a leader hires me, and I want to give some context around this because people hear the word leader. And the first thing people say to me when they want to hire me is, I don't really know if like I'm a good enough or big enough leader for you. Leadership belongs to everybody. I say in the book, you don't need initials after your name to be kind. And it's so important to just anchor yourself to the moment so you know where you're going, who you're going with and what you can model because our life shows up in our work and our work shows up in our life. And I talk and do a deep dive. I call it managing your inner leader. So when you can model and be a little bit vulnerable and authentic when things aren't going well, your team knows that they have the safe space to do the same thing. And I have a great story for this. A CEO of a large medical company hired a new COO. I'll never forget this conversation. And we were talking on a Monday morning and he said to me, you'll never guess what happened to me yesterday. He said, the new COO called me on a Sunday afternoon. And he said to me, and the CEO's name is Mike as well. And he said, Mike, I know I'm to start work tomorrow. My father-in-law has just passed away in Poland. My wife is like freaking out because she thinks you're going to fire me now because I need to fly to Poland to help bring the body back to Canada. And Mike just listened. He's just a fabulous CEO. And he said, okay. He said, you will start when you get back. Our sincere condolences to you and to your wife and your whole extended family. Let us know if there's anything we can do. And the guy was floored because I started coaching with him three weeks later. And he said, my wife has told me that I'm never leaving this company because she was so blown away at the heart centeredness 
that was given in one of the most horrible times in our lives. And I hadn't even started working, but the policy at this company and the reason they have such a rich, healthy, vibrant culture is the CEO, Mike says, if you have something going on in your life, whether it's an emergency, an illness, uh, anything, call us, let us know, please go and deal with it. Take all the time you need. And we will rally as a team so that when you come back, there's no catch up to me. They've never had anybody leave the company. They have zero absenteeism and the culture is, is so vibrant. It lights up like a Christmas tree. So think about the world would be like if every organization was like that and every executive was like that. Well, we don't plan for loss. We don't plan for exactly. trauma. That's why they're emergencies. They're not planned. And, you know, when you're trying to do that, the best that you can as a human being, and then companies look at you as a human doing, you have to have the courage to say, I don't have the mental and emotional bandwidth. I need to go be with my family. And you shouldn't be penalized for that. And to have the team have your back and handle all of your leadership kind of workflow while you're not there. I can't think of a better heart-centered leadership example. And you think about when somebody's going through a really tough time and an emergency situation, you probably don't really want them at work, especially if they're making decisions or responsible for safety of others or yeah. leading a huge part of an organization. You're not going to get somebody's best day for sure. Absolutely. So you already talked a little bit about emotional intelligence. And when we're designing and delivering executive programs, emotional intelligence is weaved throughout all the topics. How does heart-centered leadership and emotional intelligence tie or complement each other? I think they're synonymous. I think if you're a heart-centered leader, you're using all the soft skills or qualities, whatever you want to call them within emotional intelligence, it's part of your leadership toolkit every day. It's not just pulled out when needed. It's a constant. Yeah, I figured you might say that. So thanks for clarifying. And speaking of uh, emotional intelligence and uh, something else we talk about is emotional resilience. And something we're seeing a lot of and hearing more about these days is so many people are experiencing mental health challenges and crises. What are some ways that people can get themselves out of the struggle mentally without kicking the can down the road and just deciding to ignore it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I come from the medical world and I used to work on and mitigate these short-term disability claims that you're kind of referring to. It's modeled by the heart-centered leader. I don't care if it's the director level all the way up to C-suite. When they can see that self-care has allowance in their leadership and they don't have to have guilt, shame, or remorse to incorporate it, nor do they need permission, people shouldn't have to have an empty gas tank and be that far along in their journey because a heart-centered leader will pick up on it. They will check in and they don't want to know what you're thinking. They want to know what you're feeling. And a good heart-centered leader will notice that in observation. And I, I think it's great that you kind of, I call it dripping, you know, that EI, emotional resilience in each of your classes. But from what I've seen in the last almost 15 years now, I still feel that heart-centered leadership needs to be its own elective 
my big wish is to to get this in the the younger people's minds and and skill sets early so that it becomes kind of a normative behavior for them. And then I think it's going to wean out all of the episodic conversations I had. Well, my first boss, Bill or Joan, this is what she did. Well, it doesn't mean that the modeling was correct. And I think part of being heart-centered is not giving up on your own version of curiosity or that awe or wonder and tapping into that intuition management, which I have a whole chapter in my book on that because most C-suites, there was a great study done out of Harvard. I think it was the fall of 2021, 74% of C-suites go with their gut. They use their intuition because they have so much information coming at them. They have to decide, make a decision or delegate. And I find when other people, not just the higher ups can honor their intuition, because I hear every day, my gut feeling was to say this, or my gut feeling was to do this. I was afraid to say this or do this. And then if they had a, it would have made a big difference. But again, it's not a negative. It's that learning opportunity to say, okay, next time, how can you pass that along to your team? So it's modeling that self-care. It's modeling the ability to fail forward, even at the level you are at. And if I was looking up in a hierarchy and that was modeled for me, my dream creation and innovative and thought leadership, everything would be wide open and there'd be no fear or apprehension even present. Wouldn't that be a fun role to have in any company, whether you're at the top, top down sharing that, or you're looking to become a more seasoned leader, a more experienced leader, or work your way up to the C-suite level, knowing you could do it without being penalized. That's a world I want to see. Yeah, I agree with you there. And I really love how you're talking about modeling the behavior. That's huge from a leadership standpoint and being vulnerable, which you mentioned already. And two things you really touched on that rang strong here in my ears, not having any guilt or shame or remorse for focusing on yourself. We definitely run into people who kind of have that guilt and they they don't realize it's okay to take care of themselves because if they're not okay, how are they going to help other people be okay? And the other thing, getting into education early, I think that's uh, a key thing. And I wish you luck with that and hope uh, I can help with that. That's going to be my next book, Mike. We're going to, we're going to do a children's book. And I, I don't think this is our last conversation, you and I, I think there's a lot of, a lot of alignment and and goals and dreams. And, you know, I come from the medical world and I lost five executives. That's why I, I moved into coaching. They were all climbing that proverbial white ladder and hit the top and that glass ceiling. And they lost spouses, more than one marriage, some of them, children, dysfunctional relationships with children, grandchildren. And I landed up holding every one of their hands in hospice at the end of life and the shame and guilt and remorse that they had because they were chasing that dream, that extrinsic value, and they had everything money could buy, but they were very lonely and now they were sick. And to me, if that's something that I can put a small ripple effect in globally, I I know I'm, I'm doing the right work. And nobody, nobody deserves to lose their health or their mental health on their way up being curious and having awe and wonder and and having big goals and dream creation. That's exciting, but they have to model it in the right way so that all the people below them know that there's space to fail, there's space to pause, there's space to rest 
And I think if that's the world we can get to, then I think more and more people are going to jump on that bandwagon for sure. Absolutely. I look forward to the next book as well as our continued conversation. Before we wrap up this episode, however, what final advice or thoughts, or is there a call to action you'd like to share with our audience? I would love for people to get a copy of my uh, ebook or purchase uh, the paperback on Amazon. I am going to record the audio in the new year. I've had lots of requests, Mike, so I'm starting January 2nd. But the call to action is there's a manifesto that I've created. There's affirmations that I've created. And it's like anything else in your life. If you want to be good at something, and in this case, be a heart-centered leader, it's something you have to practice every day in your life and in your leadership, which should be synonymous because you're the same guy when you're not at work, I'm assuming. And you're the same guy when you come to work. That's the that's the the gap that we need to bridge for people to, to say it's okay to be yourself when you're at work. You don't got to hide behind that extrinsic value of role and responsibility and just be who you are. That's what people want. Well, Deb, thank you so much for making time in your schedule to talk with me today. If anybody's interested in picking up a copy of your book, listening to your podcast or hearing more from you, where can we point them to? Uh, Deb Crow and Crow has an E on the end.com and all my resources are there, Mike. All right. Wonderful. I will add some information about that into our show notes for everybody for easy access. In closing, I'd like to take a moment and thank our listeners. We wish you the best of luck as you move forward on your leadership journey. Please check back regularly for additional episodes.